Welcome to the Accessible Learning Experience, where we help you turn learning barriers into learning opportunities. On this episode, we're joined by three of the authors of Inclusive Learning 365, EdTech Strategies for Every Day of the Year. They are Mike Morata, Beth Paz, and Chris Bouguet. We had also hoped to have Karen Janowski on the podcast, but we experienced some connectivity issues. You can find out more about each of the authors of this book at inclusive365.com. Now let's listen in as Cast TA Specialist Maggie Pickett has a great conversation with the authors on topics such as the importance of an inclusive mindset, how to build an inclusive strategies toolkit, and their vision for a more inclusive future. I am thrilled to be sitting here today with the authors of Inclusive Learning 365, Ed Tech Strategies for Every Day of the Year. So the work that we do is emotional work, and we want to know why you do the work that you do. What makes you wake up in the morning? Um, what makes you put your shoes on and, and walk out the door? Um, Mike, let's start with you. What's, what's your accessibility story? Why'd you get started in the field? Thanks, Maggie. So why did I get started in the field? It's so interesting to look back when I, when I started hearing you ask this question. It made me start looking out the window and just kind of thinking about it. Um, many moons ago, um, far too many that I would like to admit, but it's 30 plus years ago, um, I actually got into this field, um, but by training, I, I'm an engineer. Uh, and, and when I started in this field, I had for, for many years prior to that, I had been... Um, in and out uh, of a, a local center for people with physical disabilities, mostly because my mom worked there. And so as a child, I had been there a lot. And I liked that idea of troubleshooting and helping solve problems. And moving forward as an engineer, that became the, the kind of the cornerstone of, of my AT journey, if you will, my assistive tech journey, um, is looking for solutions to problems uh, and and it's so interesting to think about where you start and then where you end up uh, and I've had who knows how many titles throughout the year they've been rehab engineer rehab technologist uh, assistive technology specialist um, I've moved through kind of all of those I've gone through and I've kind of settled on this title that I've given myself because uh, at one point I was doing a lot of consulting privately and I, you know, when you buy your own business card, you get to call yourself whatever you want. Uh, and I became an inclusive technology evangelist. And I, and I really like the idea of that, just kind of the, the one who's kind of shouting from the rooftop about how you can do this. Um, it's possible to do this. Uh, it's not scary and hard. Um, just start. And I think that that flows really nicely with the concept of our book as we put that together. Um, this idea of little bits of learning to make yourself better every day. Uh, and so it's been a long, strange journey, but it's been pretty great as I've gotten to this point. Beth, I'm sitting here thinking about this and I feel like my why has changed. Um, I've been in this field, in the field of education, um, working with individuals with disabilities for over 35 years. Um, and I was trying to pinpoint like the point where inclusion became the tipping point for me, right? That piece that was like, this is where it all is. Um, and it actually was a parent um, who I was fortunate enough to work with for many, many years, um, work with her child and work with her. Um, and she was the most amazing advocate for her child who had significant physical and speech and language um, disabilities. And this parent insisted in the nicest way possible 
that her daughter be fully included, be fully included in general education, despite the fact that, um, you know, the schools were not really uh, seeing competency there, right? They weren't seeing um, this student as being appropriate. They wanted to put her in the most restricted settings. And this parent said, nope, not happening. Um, and I feel like I got to go on her journey with her um, and see it work and see it um, never made her daughter less physically um, or speech and language impacted, um, but it made her daughter an important part of the learning community um, and an important part of the community that's evolved. I mean, I said, I think that's where like my passion for inclusion came from is because a parent pushed me to change my thinking and brought me on her journey with her. Um, the push for inclusion came with the recognition that technology and assistive technology could facilitate the inclusion of this child in um, typical classrooms. Um, and without it, we couldn't do as much, right? It never made anything perfect. It wasn't perfect, um, but it gave her the means to participate, to be engaged, to develop friendships. Um, and so that was a really powerful um, means of driving my uh, quest, so to speak, of being um, an inclusive education uh, advocate. Thanks, Beth. Chris? So I think, um, well, I think I guess I would start by saying that my background is a speech-language pathologist, uh, so is Beth, right? And my early uh, interest in accessibility and inclusion came from the aspect of language and learning language and how did we learn language. Um, about three years into my career, I was asked to be one of the founding members of the assistive technology team in our district, and that really broadened the horizons. I was um, something who, for to, to to someone who's experiencing this podcast right now. Um, if you're an administrator or anyone that is in um, in a role where you can influence others in a very direct way, one of the best ways you can empower people is by um, not telling them what to do, but asking them what to do. It was such a, I think everyone on our a team from years ago, I guess over 20 years ago now when we started our assistive technology team, um, we were just told like, help figure it out you guys uh, you tell us you tell us what to do and it there was this sense of um of like it was a little startup in our in our school district to help bring about new ideas about how technology could at the time provide accommodations for people uh, then i start to wonder if the name of this podcast shouldn't be uh or maybe this segment the evolution of accessibility, because that's how I thought of technology at first was like someone is having trouble do something, give them technology to help them do that thing. Right. Um, but now how I think of myself as an inclusive design facilitator, uh, which means I help educators look at that technology and design ways to to make it as an option for everybody. And that, I think, is the same evolution our whole team has gone on, is that move away from assistive technology, meaning this thing we provide to an individual to help them accomplish, to this... this um, um, 
to inclusive design. How do we design so that so that everybody has options to use this thing, right? And I certainly have seen, I, I think we would all agree maybe, that um, many companies that provide technology have sort of seen that move too, right? Where they start to provide more options within their suite of tools built around people with disabilities, but then that we all tend to use, right? I mean, the latest thing like that that comes to mind is like dark mode, you know? Every tool now has dark mode. Well, that's just high contrast that people who have visual impairments have been using for a long time, but maybe that's now just the default setting for a lot of things. Uh, and if you don't have that, maybe that's something, that's just an example of something that you would add to your technology. So that's how I think of it now. That's, I guess, how I got started to where I am now. One of the reasons we are such advocates for inclusion is because there isn't this real divide of general ed and special ed. That's a human-made construct. Um, so there might be kids that would qualify for special education, um, and therefore they have the right to have accommodations, right? But there might be a whole other set of kids that for whatever reason, did not cross the magical line of being eligible for special education, who also needs those those same technologies. And that's why we shift, sort of like the, the learner that Beth is talking about, um, that's how we can shift uh, to be thinking, well, if we provide options to everybody, we catch anybody, whether you're in special ed or general ed or just ed. Wow, those are all such powerful stories. Um, and I'm sure all of those stories have fed into this this time and space where you are today, authors of this book. So um, when you all sat down to write this book, what was your goal? Really, we sat down, we're thinking about this, you know, in, in all of our work together, we're, we're forever working to encourage people to look to inclusivity, to look to accessibility and finding ways to, in a sense, demystify that. Sometimes I feel like educators um, are, are struggle at times to kind of almost wrap their brains around what this means um, to be more accessible in your instruction, to be more inclusive in your instruction, um, and it feels almost unattainable at times. And so when we thought about the book, we thought about this idea of, well, how can we make this feel simpler? How can we make this bite size? How can we make this something that is not asking you to learn a bunch at once, but instead spreads the learning across um, a longer period of time. And in fact, that's the whole idea behind Inclusive Learning 365. It's a little bit of learning every day of the year in order to be better and more inclusive uh, with the instruction that you provide. I love that. That's so powerful. Um, thinking about those um, little nuggets, if you will, um, and demystifying this, what can be a, a, a huge, massive concept for folks to kind of take on. But at the beginning of the book, Beth, um, there's a section that says in capital letters, read this first, exclamation point. Do not skip this part. Based on this messaging, I mean, the concepts laid out here in this part are in this in this part of the book are really important. Um, there are a variety of concepts, but the ones presented um, on creating inclusive mindset and culture in a school. Why are these things so important? So. We are really passionate about the idea of an inclusive mindset that without that, everything else can just sort of fall to the wayside, right? If you don't really believe in the power of inclusion, 
And one of the things we often ask when we do trainings is um, what is inclusion and what is it not? And we get all sorts of different answers. A lot of times our response is um, that um, uh, inclusion is the fight against exclusion, right? Um, and, and understanding that if we're not thinking that way, talking the talk, walking the walk, um, we're not going to move the needle. What we often find, however, is with a lot of the people that we talk about, and probably the people that are picking up the book, is that they are already well on their way to having a very inclusive mindset. Um, and the book for them is going to be about strategies, how to further it. But what we almost always see is that when we ask uh, people to rate their mindset, and then their school or their district's mindset, there's a disparity. Their mindset is inclusive and they rate their district's mindset or their school's mindset as less inclusive. And so it really becomes about changing that school culture and um, being the, um, the bearer, if you will, of inclusivity into that school culture and making it a part of school culture. And so, yeah, we want everybody to read that part first. Don't just dive into the strategies. They're great and they're wonderful. But without that sort of background piece, it might not be as powerful for you to be a change agent um, with the larger school community that you're in. Creating change agents. Um, really, really powerful. So we I had the opportunity earlier this winter to um, kind of do a explore a learning series. Um, during that series, the and in the book you discuss using action words to plan or design learning opportunities for kids. Chris, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, Maggie. Well, the name of the book is Inclusive Learning. It's 365 strategies, right? Strategies is right in the title. And we had to really think, what does that mean? Um, even before writing the book, the we had done many presentations together or uh, had chatted together, and we used all sorts of different words like functions and features. I mean, this podcast is about accessibility. And when you say the word accessibility and you think about the tools that help you provide accessibility, you think of the word tool and you think of the word feature and you think of the word function of the technology. So how do, what does that all mean? And what we came to as authors together was strategies start with verbs. It's not about the tool necessarily, but what you can do with the tool. Um, so, so, when we think about the strategy, we think it starts with an action word. It's something you do. So um, uh, you're enlarging text, right? You, that's that's a an action word. You are listening to text. You are decreasing the number of hits it takes to get to uh, content. What whatever the whatever the action is, that's really at the heart of of what we want educators to do, the change that they can make, is change the actions around what they're planning for the, the learners that they are developing their experiences for. Oh, that's great. So again, it's almost demystifying, almost taking away the wonder of how do we make this accessible to 
um, actually putting it into action. Well, and Maggie, can I just say one other thing too? There is one verb that we intentionally tried not to use. So it was sort of a rule for ourselves, but a little R, not a big R for the rule. And that is we tried not to use the word using, using QR codes to blah, 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 right? That is just a sort of a... Uh, it, it wasn't getting to the real action. That's just using a tool, right? It's like, what can the tool really do for you to help provo- provide more options for, for the learners that we're designing for? Really getting some clarity in, in the, those action words. Um, awesome. So we've got the book, right? Um, but building new skills as an educator, it's something that takes intentionality and time, which is in high demand, uh, right? Um, how can we as um, coaches, as trainers, as leaders, help educators and support them to build their inclusive strategy toolkit, if you will. Maggie, I love this question. I love everything about this question because I think, isn't that always um, a, a quick answer that people give us? Well, I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to do that. Um, I have so much I need to do in so little time. And that's true. I mean, we I'm sure we could all spend the rest of our time right now talking about all the things we have to do today. Um, But that I really love that word intentionality and thinking about um, how someone approaches this. What I I always feel like is so powerful about our idea of leading with strategy is that there could be opportunities as people leaf through the book to find things they're already doing but never quite tagged it as an inclusive strategy. And I think that's a really great moment for people, too, um, to recognize, hey, I am doing some things. Everybody needs a little positive reinforcement sometimes, like, oh, I'm doing these things already. This is great. But how can I go a little further with that? Um, One of the other things that I I feel was really helpful in in the book as we were throwing it together was thinking about... um, the indexes that we put in the back of the book. And one of the indexes, even though the book is strategy first, tool second, there is this approach to it where if you go to the back of the book, there is an index that lists tools and what pages they show up on for different strategies. And I I feel like that's a really powerful on-ramp for some people too, because they may have just enough time in their day to use... Google Docs better than they are now. How could I use Google Docs to be more inclusive? I don't have time to learn a brand new thing, but I have time to use something I already know more inclusively or to be accessible with the instruction I put together using a tool I'm already familiar with. And I think that is a really great way to build someone's toolkit and really we might and in some cases even be building what we might be doing is kind of just fleshing it out a little bit more these are tools i already have now i have these creative inclusive ways to use them to meet more of the needs of the learners in my environment i was just going to add one more thing to what mike said like that was so powerful about the way that you can build your toolkit with just like one more thing that you're going to add on but also the idea that because of the way the book is organized and being cognizant of the lack of time that educators have these days is that it's that that ability to just find one piece in there um and if you if you would 
low-hanging fruit, right? Like you don't have to reach all the way up to the top highest branch. You can find something really practical that you can do with what you have tomorrow. Um, And that's how we can empower educators to build that toolkit without feeling this sense of overwhelming, like, I agree with all of this, but I just can't do it. This is so powerful. It's giving people actionable, real world, like, I can do this right now opportunities um, to really kind of build those skills. Um, It's not this pie in the sky stuff that sometimes our educators get get confronted with. Um, It's really actionable, which is is what we need. Um, But let's do pie in the sky for just a minute. So if we were to think 10 years down the road, um, and each one of you could paint your pie in the sky picture of what education looks like when you walk into any classroom, what would it, what would you see in these classrooms if it were, um, your pie in the sky kind of moment? What do you want to see happening in classrooms for kids? And let's do a round robin. Um, I don't, who, who wants to start us off? When I when I think about this question, Maggie, my first comment is this: is is slightly off center and maybe a little bit of a wise guy. But why does that learning in ten years have to be defined by the classroom it's in? Um, and so maybe that would be my pie in the sky: is that we're learning all the time. I think one of the one of the interesting aspects of learning during the pandemic was seeing how the shift in the learning environment was a, a a good positive move for some learners and then it was a struggle for others uh, and so we saw these interesting things i i know that there's a there's a young man that i that i work in his district um, around here i used to work in the district i don't work there this year but i did before uh, and i remember his mom saying to me i wish he could be at home learning all the time for school because he's moving around throughout the day he's walking around their house with a chromebook in front of him actively participating in every class um, but doing it in a manner that works for him that learning had been modified to work for him Uh, and so i guess my big word that i would say would be flexibility just an increase and and always looking for the next way we could be more flexible and thinking about what is our learning environment look like for learners? Um, I really, I want instead of like what I'm going to see, it's what if I was like listening, right? If I was listening to the way that um, adults in a school building were talking, I want to hear them instead of using words like those kids or your kids, I want to hear my kids and our kids um, so that when there are students um, with an IEP, um, it doesn't belong to somebody else. It belongs to that general education classroom teacher, right? Um, that inclusiveness, the, the language that we use is so, so important. So I want to hear that language change. All right, Maggie. Well, I guess I'll wrap it up for us with, um, with, tying the pie in the sky to a practical strategy. So if you really want to know what the authors think uh, the vision might be like for, uh, gosh, I, I hope it's not 10 years away. I hope it's five years away or less. It's uh, We actually wrote uh, 366 strategies. There's a, there's a 366 
strategy in the book that sort of outlines the vision of where we'd like to go, um, where we'd like to see, what we'd like to see. And some of the things that we include there are like a, a significant decrease in standardized tests. Mike uh, brought up the pandemic, right? Uh, it's one of the first things we cut during the pandemic was like, yep, don't need those. And uh, who missed them? Right. But uh, now they're now they're back. So something like that uh, uh, is a great example. Um, thinking about reshifting from grade levels and grade level content just to making it more learner centered and learner focused. So those are some ideas of what's in the uh, I don't want to spoil it all. Go look at what we wrote, really wrote as uh, strategy 366. But it's a practical way to get there. Marrying that that pie in the sky to how to get there. One. um one way we advocate for doing that is to look at your learning environment. Mike said, why classroom? Why not learning spaces or learning environment? And how can we take that physical space um, or virtual space and make it more flexible? If we can take that, 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 that space and make it more flexible, um, the next question educators ask is, well, what else can I make more flexible? Like that seemed to really work to support the learners. So so if you think about a, a physical space, do we have different heights in seating? Are kids invited to sit on the floor or stand if they want? Um, are there different uh, types of lighting that's available? Uh, not everyone is, has the uh, the buzz or the, the, the drone of the, the fluorescent lights ab above. Um, is there... Uh, uh, different spaces that they can work so they could they could work individually or in pairs or small groups or in in full groups and can your environment shift to embrace those different uh, those different uh, different groups of learning from individual to small to, to whole and I, I, those sorts of ideas of looking at a um, uh, your physical space starting there. And that, uh, just as a, uh, there is an actual roadmap for how to do that. If most places listening right now to this podcast or reading the, the transcript were to look at the special education classrooms, the segregated classrooms that still exist, and go, wow, look at those classrooms. They're uh, the autism programs. They actually have soft lighting. They have multiples uh, flexible seating. They have uh, different places that you can shift to go from individual cubby work to small group work to whole group work. They can be a template for how we could design the learning spaces beyond, right? And then once you do that, you could say the shift happens to say, hmm, what if we put learners with disabilities at the center of our design. Let's design for them. And then everyone else comes along with that because it's just going to benefit everybody else as opposed to how it probably works now, which is, oh, we design some sort of thing and then we adapt it for kids that that doesn't work for, right? In 10 years, what if we designed, if we thought our, our educational experiences started with people with disabilities and then we moved from there? I think I hit my like button 20 times while you all were talking. Such powerful um, messages and you know, taking it from pie in the sky into really actionable stuff. Um, thank you. And I, I flipped to my book and I looked at the 366 strategy. Um, it, yes, abs yes, I want to start my list right now. Make a stop doing list. Um, well, let's wrap things up. And we really want to make sure that anybody listening to the podcast or Chris, as you said, reading the transcript could get a hold of you all or know where to find you. Um, on social media and whatnot. So um, 
Can you can you share with us where folks can find you and follow you? Sure. So um, our website is inclusive365, so the number 365.com. Um, and you can find pretty much all of our information about us as individuals um, on there. Um, you can follow um, us as a book on Twitter at inclusive365 also. Um, and on Instagram at inclusive365 book. We have um, a Facebook page, Inclusive 365 Book, as well. Um, uh, and then all of us are, of course, um, on Twitter as, um, and Instagram and social media as individuals as well. But starting off with those, the book sites are probably a really good place that you can get in touch with any one of us that you wanted uh, to touch base with us. Wonderful. Thanks, Beth. And the learning series that we all... Um, got to 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 work with you on uh, is available on sites.cast.org for anybody who's interested. Um, those webinar that webinar series is up live on the website, um, so go check it out. It's it's a lot of fun to watch, um, and there it's a three part series. Thank you all for joining us today. It was a lot of fun having this conversation. Um, we appreciate your time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Accessible Learning Experience, brought to you by the National Center on Accessible Educational Materials at CAST. You can find us on the web at aem.cast.org. There you'll find show notes with links to all of the resources mentioned on each episode. Thanks again for listening. And remember, accessibility is everyone's responsibility. Contents of this podcast were developed under a cooperative agreement with the U.S. Department of Education. However, those contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government.